You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. So listen, it is this vision of Christ as holy and true that keeps us on track in the midst of all of the perversion and dishonesty that surrounds us in our world today. So the idea here then is Jesus is our compass. Jesus is our model. And if you think about it, all of Christianity is about holiness and truth. That's what God is most interested in holiness, and truth. As believers and followers of Christ, we have the ultimate source of holiness and truth, which of course is none other than Christ himself. While other religions might look to tradition or philosophy to guide them, we need look no further than our Savior. In today's message, Pastor Mike will draw your attention to the focus on how Christ is presented to the church at Philadelphia. In his study, you'll learn that not only are we called to holiness and truth, but we can look to Jesus as our example. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Revelation chapter 3 as he begins his message, Philadelphia, the faithful church. with me if you went to the book of Revelation in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. The title is Philadelphia, the Faithful Church. And this is that section within the book of Revelation where Jesus writes these seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. And if you're keeping count, this is the sixth in that series. So once again, Philadelphia, the Faithful Church. Church. Now let me begin, before we go ahead and break down this letter for you, let me give you some a little geographical uh, information concerning this particular uh, city and church. The city of Philadelphia was actually located about 30 miles southeast of the city of Sardis, leading to the city of Laodicea. And it was situated in a fertile agricultural area and it was for, uh, famous for its cultivation of grapes. Now, out of all of the churches that are listed here in this section of the book of Revelation, personally, this is one I'm most interested in. And obviously, as we go through this letter, you'll realize why I'm most interested in it, why all of us should be most interested in this particular uh, church. And it's probably the one that if I would have lived during the time in which John received this revelation, I would have loved to visit. Now, why is that? Well, simply because it is the only one of the seven churches that Jesus addresses here 
that he looks upon favorably. There's an absence of rebukes, indictments. There's no admonitions. Only good is spoken of and concerning this church by our Lord. Now, it's been said that this church represents and characterizes that period of church history from 1750 A.D. to all the way up and through 1950 A.D. It was that era that was marked by strong Bible teaching, evangelism, missionary work, and revival, during which time God raised up men like William Carey, John and Charles Wesley, Dwight Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, uh, Jose Rivera. Okay, so I just threw him in to make sure that you were uh, paying attention. Okay, so anyway, that's just some of the background uh, concerning uh, this location and this uh, letter. Now let's go ahead and get into this letter that Jesus sent to the church at Philadelphia. And that brings us to our first point, and that is Jesus presents himself. So I want you to note the way that Jesus presents himself to the church of Philadelphia. Verse 7. Let's go ahead and begin there. And to the angel, or the overseer, that would uh, refer to the pastor, the elders, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he, Jesus, who is, notice the way that he uh, presents himself, who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, and he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Okay, so a very comprehensive uh, description that Jesus provides for us here of himself there in verse 7. Now let's break this down for you. First of all, Jesus refers to himself, notice, as the one who is holy. And I would remind you that each description uh, within each and every one of the seven letters specifically suits to meet the needs of the particular church that he sent in these letters uh, to. So notice Jesus refers to himself, first of all, as the one who is holy. And holiness is the essential attribute of God, of deity. Jesus is the Holy One. Now, throughout the Bible, we are told exactly that. For example, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 7, and verse 26, we are told Jesus is the Holy One, and it testifies of Jesus as holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 says, The one, referring to Jesus, who committed no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. So holiness is what Jesus is in himself. It's his essential character. But they notice also, there in verse 7, he goes on to declare that not only is he uh, holy, but he is also true. Notice what it says there. He that is true, or the true one. That is right in character. Perfect in what he is. Perfect in what he does. And he alone, Jesus, could say, I am the way, the truth, there it is, that word, the truth, and the life. John's Gospel in chapter 14, in verse 6. So listen, it is this vision of Christ, as holy and true, 
that keeps us on track in the midst of all of the perversion and dishonesty that surrounds us in our world today. So the idea here then is Jesus is our compass. Jesus is our model. And if you think about it, all of Christianity is about holiness and truth. That's what God is most interested in, holiness and truth. But then notice he also goes on in the way of describing himself, presenting himself. He declares, he who has the key of David. That is the one who is heir of all things, the king. In fact, he is the king of kings. You know, interestingly enough, and we'll get to this in one of our future studies, uh, recorded first in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, when Jesus comes the second time to put an end to all of the rebellion of mankind at that one final conflict in the battle of Armageddon, Jesus is presented there, and we are told in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16, when he comes back with his armies to fight that final war, there at Armageddon, we are told, on his thigh, there was a name written. And what was that name? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings who exercises absolute power, who rules over heaven and the earth. And then the final way that he presents himself uh, to this church, notice there also in verse 7, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. So this, it, the idea here is that Jesus is the door. And there are three specific applications to the way that Jesus describes himself for us uh, here. The first of which is salvation. Uh, think about it in this way. He is the door that leads to everlasting life. In fact, in John's Gospel, in chapter 10, in verses 7, and then uh, also in verse 9, if you'd like to uh, turn there with me, there we are told that Jesus said, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And in verse 9 of that same chapter, he goes on to declare, I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and will go in and out, and he will find pasture. So that's the first application of Jesus being the door, our salvation. But then secondly, the second application has to do with service. He is the door through which we uh, pass through, where we can serve God. And any person that makes the decision to live and move in the center of God's will for their lives will find an open door for Christian service. And no power will shut that door. So the idea here is that we will have success in whatever God has called us uh, to do. And then the third application of the door is safety. We're locked in. We're safe from the wrath to come. We're taken out of this world. Specifically, I, I think that this may be a reference to the seven years of tribulation, how that the church is going to be taken out of the world before God uh, brings judgment against a Christ-rejecting world. So those are just some of the uh, ways that Jesus presents himself to this church. Now that brings us to our second point, and that is Little Big Church. So if you're taking notes, write that down, Little Big Church. Okay, let's go on in our text now. In verse 8, there he says, I know your works. See, I have set before you 
an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and you have kept my word, and have not denied my faith. So what I gather uh, from what Jesus is saying here is that apparently Philadelphia, the church was small in number. They had little numerical strength. And I've come to that conclusion by the phrase, you have a little strength. But listen, this does not suggest that they were feeble or inept or not successful. They made full use of the strength that they did possess, that God had given to them. You know, I, I don't think God's people, if you think about it, have ever been in the numerical majority. For example, think about Abraham in the Old Testament. We are told with 318 men defeated the armies of the four kings. It's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 14. That came into the area of Sodom and Gomorrah and sacked and looted the city and took away Abraham's nephew Lot. Uh, how about Gideon and his band of 300 who solidly defeated the Midianites? That's recorded for us in the book of Judges in chapter 7. In fact, Jesus himself in Luke's Gospel in chapter 12 and verse 32, referred to his disciples as a little flock. Listen, it pleased God to make the fullness of his power available to his faithful believers there in Philadelphia, even though they were small in number. And listen, like Philadelphia, we can be sure, if we are faithful, as faithful as those members of that church, God will empower us, and He will use us. He will open the door that no man can shut. Notice there again in verse 8. And yes, we may, we may not be able to exert much power politically, as some other churches do, or economically, but we will be Christ's on-fire evangelists. Gang, this power is available to all who have been joined together by faith in Jesus Christ, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They had a little strength. And then Jesus goes on, notice there also in verse 8, to say that you have kept my word. Now this is something that's very, very important. In other words, Jesus is suggesting here that they were true to the gospel, that they were loyal to the words of Christ. They did not succumb to the philosophy and popular thinking of their day. Oh, may God help us in this particular area as well. I mean, think about it. In the present day in which we live, the various speculations having to do with uh, God's Word, the Bible, whether or not it's inspired, whether or not it's true, whether it is to be embraced or rejected, as our so-called theologians try to figure it all out for us. Hey, listen, these believers there in Philadelphia believe the whole canon of Scripture as originating and inspired by God. Let me give you a cross-reference for this. In 2 Timothy, in chapter uh, 3, there we are told in verses 15 through 17 that uh, the Scriptures are able to make us wise uh, for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Listen, its accuracy 
was not left to some so-called scholars. They received, they loved, they believed, they obeyed the word. It was their treasure. They considered it a holy thing, and thus they kept and guarded it carefully. But then notice also, he goes on further in verse 8, to declare of them, you have not denied my name. Now listen, this was no small thing. That is to hold up the name of Jesus, to proclaim it openly when it was not popular to do so, to declare that there is no other name under heaven or in the earth whereby a man can be saved. You know, that was the message of the first church, uh, the apostolic church, and remains the same message that we need to deliver today by the present-day last days church. Oh, that wonderful name of Jesus which implies so many things. We refer to Jesus as our Lord. The idea there is that he is our master, our mediator, the one who goes between, between us and God the Father. Like, for example, in prayer, our mediator, our Messiah. We refer to Jesus as our Messiah, our Savior, the one who saves. He is deity, the second person of the Godhead. Uh, Jesus, with all of his attributes, his honor, his glory, his majesty, his holiness, how that he is omnipotent, how that he is all-powerful, how that he is omniscient, that is, he knows all things, how that he is omnipresence. He is everywhere at the, at the same time, holding to the name of Christ and what it represents, unswerving loyalty to him and his cause. That's the, the, the thing that he's commending them for. Listen, I believe that was the secret to their power. Because simply, there's power in the name of Jesus. Listen, the cost of acknowledging the name of Christ in those days was high. And the day is upon us, I believe, again, when we will pay a price for declaring that wonderful name. I mean, think about it. We're already living in days where the people declare that evil is good and good is evil, where Christians are considered intolerant, narrow-minded, and bigoted. Oh, how that we need to more than ever hold up the name and glorify the name and broadcast the name of Jesus. And so he commends them and declares they did not deny his name. Now that brings us to our third point, and that is tares among the wheat. Let's go back to our text. Notice in verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. But he indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Okay, so here now was the problem that these believers were confronted with there in Philadelphia. There were those present within the church who were coming off like believers, yet they were in opposition to the truth. They were Jews claiming to be Christians, but their actual character is revealed to us in no uncertain terms. Notice there in verse 9. He says of them that they belong to the synagogue of Satan. Now listen, I'm not suggesting that you, that you nationally... Uh, as your nationality, you're a Jew and cannot be a Christian. That's not what Jesus is suggesting here. The idea is that being a Jew would be a, a true worshiper of God, someone who uh, was wanting to follow God. 
But there were those who were imposters. They were liars. Uh, he could be referring to, we're not quite sure, he could be referring to those Judaizing teachers that we were introduced to both in the book of Acts as well as in the book of Galatians. Most of the book of Galatians deals with that particular uh, subject. They were mutilators of the word. And they were seeking to make disciples for themselves. So literally, uh, it could be said of these individuals, they were tares among the wheat, the true wheat of God. Well, whoever they were, one day there would be a day of accounting. Notice there in verse 9. He says of these individuals, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. Okay, let's go back to our text. Let's read the remaining verses that are a part of this letter written to the church in Philadelphia. Pick up in verse 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. And he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so here's the focal point. Jesus is coming again, which is a reoccurring theme throughout all of these seven letters. And why did he choose to do that? Well, to remind them that he's coming so that they wouldn't be caught in a state of being unprepared, that they would do everything that they possibly could do up until that point of his coming to purify themselves. And, and you know, the idea of Christ coming back always has a purifying effect upon uh, a believer. Uh, Jesus says, he that has this hope, that is the hope of Jesus coming back, purifies himself even as he is uh, pure. And his reward is with him to give to every man according to his labor. Jesus is coming again. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. In the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 in verse 6, we are told that he, that is Jesus, is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. Now, the devil would use those of his synagogue to steal our rewards from us. And listen, in any church, you can be sure of this, there are various forms of evil that can be introduced by Satan's agents. A cold heart, indifference, discouragement, dissatisfaction, promoting false doctrines, worldliness. So anyway, the warning that Jesus serves up here be careful that no one takes your crown. In my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long to be. Oh, my the book of Revelation is filled with symbols and numbers and pictures that seem beyond comprehension. Yet each one has a purpose and meaning. This book takes you into the end of the world, a time when Jesus will return to redeem the earth and rid it once and for all of evil. It's a time that may be sooner than you think. 
And that's why we're so glad you joined us today to study this important final book of the Bible on In My Father's House. If you'd like to hear more teachings from this series in Revelation, or if you want to explore Pastor Mike's studies in the other books of the Bible, just visit harvestnyc.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be notified each time we post a new edition of the show. We want to meet you too. If you're going to be in Midtown Manhattan, come join us this Sunday for worship at Harvest Christian Fellowship. You'll be able to reserve your seat and get directions at harvestnyc.org or join us virtually. We're streaming each Sunday and Thursday so everyone has the chance to attend and worship as a community of believers. That website again is harvestnyc.org. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to let you know that we're praying for you. You are a valued listener, and we're grateful to have you tuned in to learn about the love of God from the pages of Scripture. With that, our time with you is coming to an end. Join us next time for another edition of In My Father's House. There's a place for